Well, good morning and welcome to New Heights online viewers. Good morning, welcome, good to have you. You know, um, we obviously are winning too many football games and we haven't even talked about it yet. What's, it's like old hat now, ho-hum, another victory in Death Valley. New Heights, for the last three months, we have been looking at the big, the big picture of scripture and we've been calling it the story of God. And you may remember that we said from the beginning that the story is, is not about us. Sometimes, here's what I, what I tend to do. I tend to read the Bible and I go right to what does it mean for me as if it were written to me. But the Bible wasn't written only to me or about me, but it was written about Jesus. So my goal is for me to fit myself into his story rather than trying to fit him into the life that I want to to live. So that's been our goal. That's been our desire. We want to encourage you to put yourself into Jesus' story. As our very own Mick Cullinan, he said at the beginning of our series, he said this, and I quote, we were made for a rich relationship and profound purpose with Jesus in his kingdom and under his authority. Every other story, especially my story, especially your story, must bow the knee to Jesus' story. Last week, Kevin taught on, on Jesus' birth and earthly life and earthly ministry. And this week, we'll continue the story of God by, by looking at Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the moment. This is the moment where our hero shows up and he rescues all of mankind. This is the moment that we've been waiting for. So far, Genesis to Malachi, in the waiting, the life of Jesus, and now finally we're here. We're here. In Luke chapter 24, the risen Jesus spoke these words to two, to two men on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. Now that same day, you say, what, what day was it? It was the day of resurrection. Either they hadn't heard yet or they didn't believe. Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. They were talking about Jesus' death, and they were like, bummer. It, it didn't work out. Another Messiah. He came, he taught, he proclaimed, he died. Bummer! As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself, I love this, came up and walked alongside him, but he kept them from recognizing him. You say, how did he do that? Jedi mind trick, hat, big nose, glasses, I don't know, mustache, I don't know. He's Jesus. Now this is really important because this is what we've been talking about. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's what we've been talking about, beloved. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, before we go any further, we need some review. You may recall we started our series 
with creation. God creates. He creates the universe. He creates the sky, sea, sea creatures, land, land animals. And the culmination of God's creation is, is you, you and I. We're not a tree, right? I'm not a, I, I, I'm, I'm not a horse, right? I'm, I'm significantly more special than that. You say, well, what, where do you get that from? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind what? In our, our image. Horses, special. Trees, special. Mountains, beautiful. Lakes, awesome. They're not made in the image of God. I'm made, you're made in the image of God. Like God said, if I couldn't make me look like somebody, it would look like Nathan Allen, a red-bearded Viking. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over. This is called the cultural mandate. We are to rule, but rule appropriately, right? That they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He, he created them. Underline the words, let us, in verse 26. The us there is God the Father. It's plural. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And, and as a picture of that, you may recall, um, at the beginning of our series, I, I put up three chairs. And these chairs represent the Trinity. The teaching of Scripture is that God exists before time in the Trinity, in an unceasing state of love and joy and delight. And unlike the pagan myths in that day, the God of the Bible does not create because he's lonely or bored or needs help getting his work done. Rather, and please hear this, out of the richness of his magnificent being, out of the fullness of the community of the Trinity, God says this, let's create human beings, not as God, but in our own image, and let's invite human beings to, to bask in the fellowship of the Trinity. God says for the first time in human history, I'm giving you an opportunity to sit in the midst of this divine council. And for the first time to, to receive the love of a father, like a real father, like a father who will never leave us or forsake us. And to experience not just the salvation that comes from Jesus, but a, a, a brother who's closer than a friend. And then not only that, it gets better. I, God, the Holy Spirit, he says, I will be with you. I will counsel you. I will convict you. I will guide you. I'll give you wisdom. Here's the challenge. None of this, none of this takes place if it's not for that.
three chairs, a Trinitarian community require three crosses. Specifically, one cross. The cross of Jesus. Kevin mentioned this last week. It's been around since the beginning of time, but it's really, it's really come to light here in the last 20 months, this concept of a kingdom without a king. We want a savior without a cross. We want this desperately. But it requires this. There's no way around it. To fully embrace the three chairs, we must fully embrace the cross of Jesus. Do me a favor. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And it's going to get really heavy here because in this passage we see the dividing line of eternity. In this passage we'll see the stories of, of two men whose lives are almost identical but fall by their own choice on the opposite side of the line and they end up in entirely different places. And I, I don't miss this, every life on this planet, it's, it's pretty mind-boggling, is represented by these two men. Every single life. Luke chapter 23 and verse 26, and the soldiers led Jesus, led him away. Two other men, both criminals, verse 32, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by by casting lots. And I know what some of you are wondering. You're wondering, how did Jesus get up on that cross in the first week, in the first place? After all, the last time we saw him last week, Kevin had pointed out that he was doing miracles and healing people and establishing his kingdom on earth. But then Jesus had gotten sideways with both the religious and secular leaders of, of the day. And the religious leaders, well, they were, imagine this, jealous of him because he threatened their authority. And the secular leaders thought of him as a nuisance who didn't tremble enough before the government, before the almighty power of Rome. The Jewish people were disappointed that he hadn't thrown off the Roman power the way they thought he would and could and should. And his disciples, well, they were confused, right? So, so confused that one literally betrayed him and the rest abandoned him. So in a sense, Jesus' crucifixion to me represents the culmination of the collective failure of the human race. That is, caused by our jealousy, our arrogance, our apathy, our unbelief, and our, our cowardice, we put him up on that cross. But God, Scripture tells us, had his own purpose in it. Something he has been pursuing since the beginning of, of mankind. From the beginning, God had told his people he would send a savior to take their place under the curse of death. He told Adam and Eve that he would send a deliverer who would crush the serpent of death, but the serpent would bite the heel of the deliverer. That's the crucifixion. 
From that point on, the Bible gives us picture after picture after picture of this. We've been looking at these pictures. When Abraham was about to sacrifice his, his son, Isaac, at God's command, God led him to a ram in the bushes so that Isaac, his son, could go free. The entire sacrificial system was built on the concept of an innocent substitute taking the place of the guilty. Once a year, a, a believing family would bring a lamb, a perfect unblemished lamb, and they would lay it on, on the altar, and it would be sacrificed for their sins. God is building, he's building, he's pointing to this moment. Isaiah the prophet said that one day God would send his servant to be the lamb who suffered for the sins of the world, and that he would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace would be laid upon Jesus, and by his stripes... We would be healed. When John the Baptist saw Jesus from afar, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away what? Sins of the world. On the head of Jesus was going to be laid your sins and my sins. Past, present, future of the entire world. The German reformer Martin Luther said this, and I quote, all the prophets foresaw that on the cross Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter, the denier. You will become Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. You will become David, that adulterer. You will become Adam, the sinner, which did eat the apple of apple in paradise. On the cross, Jesus became our, our sin so that from the cross he could look out. He could look out not to only those who gathered that, that day, but he could look out to us and say, Father, forgive them. He could extend forgiveness to them because he was being punished for them. You see, the Bible says this. This is really important. Without the shedding of blood, Jesus' blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. None. Now we turn to the two crosses on either side of him because they represent you and me. They represent the division of the entire human race. Luke chapter 23 and verse 39, we pick up the story. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Hey, 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 hey. Aren't you the Messiah? How, how often do we do that, right? Hey, 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 hey! Aren't you God? Why is there suffering? Hey, hey, hey! Uh, Jesus, aren't you the Savior? Why do bad things happen? Do we do that? Aren't you the Messiah? Do what I want you to do, right? Because it's all about me. Save yourself. And us, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. First, let's talk about what these two guys ha have in common. This is really important because I think we have a false narrative here. Um, both were equally bad. We tend to go good criminal, bad criminal, right? 
Good criminal, bad criminal. In Matthew's gospel, it says both of the criminals, the thieves, whatever your translation may say, both of them were hurling insults at Jesus. You're like, oh man, that ruins the narrative. They both were. Both criminals would have been happy if, if Jesus um, would have saved them from death. In verse 39, even the one that ultimately rejects Jesus says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He would have loved Jesus to come down off the cross and lead out in a, in a fight against Rome. But this is really important. W one criminal begins to understand some things that are necessary for true conversion, for true salvation, necessary for us to sit in the middle of the chairs. Let me give you just a couple, just a couple. First, first, true conversion looks like this. He really wanted Jesus. You gotta get this down. Not just help from Jesus. He really wanted Jesus, not just help from Jesus. Did you, did you notice in verse 40, the repentant criminal doesn't ask to be taken down from the cross? I'm sure he'd have been happy if Jesus did, but all he's concerned about in this moment is being right with Jesus. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal realizes that what, what he needs is not a change in circumstance, but a, a change in what his life has been centered upon. Instead of asking God for the life he wants, he wants to make God his life. Let me say that again. Instead of asking God for the life that he wants, he wants to make God his life. Do we understand the difference between seeking God as the best means to the life we want and wanting to make God our life? Simply put, there's a big difference between loving God for himself and, and finding him as a useful means to my end. Many people wonder, um, I'm going to clear this up right now, so be encouraged. Many people wonder about deathbed conversions, right? Here's the question. Can someone live an evil life and never do anything good or think about God at all and in the moments before they die, repent and, and go to heaven? Yes. Hallelujah, right? Thank God that this story shows us that. But it has to be true repentance. It can't be, God, give me a get out of hell free card. It has to be a change of heart. Last week, Kevin said that the main message, he had a lot of them, but the main message of Jesus was this, and I want you to see it. It's really important. Chad, can we get that up there? Repent and believe the good news of the gospel. You say, wow, repent. That's a strong word. And Kevin unpacked it for us last week. I'm going this direction, living my life, thinking my thoughts, doing my thing. I'm on a journey of, of self-destruction, and I go, whoa, wait a second. I'm turning from that, and I'm turning to my only hope, Jesus. He's my only hope. I'm not, I'm not turning from that to my counselor. I'm not turning from that to my, my community at church because they're really cool, and we get to hang out together. But good thing, right? That's a byproduct. I'm not turning from that to some other ideology, some other philosophy, some other system, some other political movement. 
Jesus said, repent and believe the good news of the gospel. And that's the question for every one of us here this morning. Have we truly repented? Why do we want Jesus? Well, you know, my marriage is struggling. (laughs) I'm in a financial jam. (laughs) Economy's killing me. Made some bad fiscal decisions. Got, Got a terrible back. Hips falling apart. Could use some cash. A little money would be nice. I've heard about that name it, claim it. I want to get in on that. I don't want to go to hell. Heaven sounds better than hell. Come, come on. Do we want him for him? Have we truly repented before God or have we just tried to arrange a deal with God? Just cut a deal. Here's another sign of true conversion that we see from the criminal on the cross. Secondly, he understood his guilt before God. Luke 23 and verse 41, he says, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. He gets it, right? But this man has done nothing wrong. He's not talking about Rome's punishment of him on the cross. He's saying, we, you and I, deserve to be abandoned by God to be punished for our sins. We deserve before him to die. True repentance recognizes that sin is first and foremost against God. Is that how you feel about your sin? Repentance has to be vertical first before it extends horizontally. There, there's a difference, you see, between feeling remorse for the mess sin has made in your life and feeling true repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance. Godly sorrow that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. Now get this. But worldly sorrow, there's lots of, you say, oh, well, there's another kind of sorrow. Yeah, there's worldly sorrow. If that's all it is in the moment for you, it leads ultimately to death. Sometimes we think that tears equal real repentance. They can. But, but repentance isn't measured by the amount of tears that we shed but it's about whether our heart towards God changes. Many, many years ago, there was a man who I grew up with. He knew me, I knew him. And he, he came to me one day and he said, he said Lee, I, my life is a mess. Can we, can we talk? I'll never forget, he, I invited him to the house, invited him into my room, and uh, he was a mess. He was usually very cocky and full of vigor and, and brash, but he was his whole countenance was just slumped over. He sat at the edge of my bed. I sat there in a chair. He said, Lee, my life is a mess. And it gets funny here because he looks at me and goes, you were a mess too. What happened? I said, wait a second, is this about you or me? What's, no, you were, he goes, you were really bad. I'm, okay, okay, I got it, I got it. He said, no, but really, you're different now. And I said, immediately, I said, Jesus. 
I said, what's going on? He said, I got my girlfriend pregnant. He's 19 years old. I said, I, I can give you some advice about that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty young myself, but I, I can tell you only what changed my life, and that's Jesus. He said, tell me about Jesus. I gave the gospel the best that I could. And he began to weep and weep and cry out. I'm like, oh, my word. Woo-hoo. Mila got him a Bible. He got baptized. Woo-hoo. I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a crier, right? Unless the Razorbacks win the national football championship. I'm not a crier. Um, I want to be like Jim. I want to be like Nathan, but it, I, I, I can't. This guy put Jim and Nathan to shame. If Jim were there, he'd go, dang, that guy can cry. Hats off, hats off. He wept awkwardly. Five months later, I'm doing everything I can to track him down. He came to me five months later. I can't get a hold of him. I finally do, and he says, hey, everything's good. I said, are you reading your Bible? Nah. Are you in a church? No. Nope. I got through the moment. I'm good. I'm good. If tears counted for repentance, he'd be the greatest believer ever. It's your heart. It's acknowledging, I need Jesus and Jesus alone. God, you are holy, you are sinless, I am sinful, I am desperate, it's only you. There's no plan B. The sadness we feel about our sin, is it because of what our sin has, has done to God or to others or messed up our life? God is the main one we've sinned against. God is our creator. God is our judge, and he is our savior. As long as we, we think only about the horizontal dimensions of our sin, I hurt my wife, I failed my kids, I got my girlfriend pregnant, we'll never really change. That's a therapeutic gospel. It's not this. It's not this. But here's the good news. I love this. Kevin talked about it last week. We can repent today, right now. Like right now. Well, I need to get my life right. No, that's the problem. Your life is really wrong. Repent. Well, that would be awkward. I've, I've claimed to love Jesus for the longest time, but really I just kind of loved a lot of me and Jesus kind of fit in on the side. That's okay. That's all right. Repent. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation, like right now. The enemy, the flesh, the world will whisper, scream at you, no, stay away from that. It's awkward to get messy and dirty and cry real tears of repentance because you need Christ and Christ alone. It's okay. The Bible says this, what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world but to lose their, their soul? Nothing. For some in this room, this is your moment. This is your time. 
You say, are you going to give a crazy altar call? I, I'm not against it. I got, sa- I got saved walking down an altar, uh, walking down an aisle up to an altar. The, the, the aisle and the altar didn't save me, but man, it was a good place to go. But no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. You can repent today. You can do it right now. The only way for any of us to enter into tri- Trinitarian community, for us to experience the, the, the life abundant and life eternal is by making a decision about the cross of Jesus. So let me remind us of these two criminals, that like these two criminals, we are guilty. Like them, we are dying. We may not be hanging on a cross hours before um, our death, but death is as certain for us as it is for them. And like this criminal, we can't possibly hope to earn God's salvation. We have nothing whereby to repay God. This man had no life to offer God in payment, none. Neither do you and I. But just like these two criminals, Jesus is right here, but you have to choose. You have to choose. Mom and dad can't choose. You say, I got this grandma. She's been praying for me. Praise God. And I think she kind of she stands in my stead. No, she doesn't. She's just praying for you. She can't save you. She can't put in a good word to God when you die and pass into eternity. And he, but he was my... Mom and dad can't choose, our spouse can't choose, culture can't choose, grandma can't choose. He's there, but get this, Jesus will not force himself on you. You must choose. Some of your mind's already going to, well, I had a youth pastor, forget the youth pastor, who said bad things to you. I'm sorry he did. Well, there, I, I've been on TikTok, and it's talking about Christians who are hypocrites. Hey, hey, did you see me on there? Because I'm a hypocrite. I'm not even sure what TikTok is, but it's whatever. <laughs> yeah, but you got to choose. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Um, Luke's gospel continues. Luke 24 and verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Um, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, but then on the third day, be raised again. Then they remembered his words, and when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with him who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. I always find it interesting. The women got it. The apostles were a little slow, right? (laughs) I love it. There are so many applications to this passage. We'll save them for Easter, but let me leave us with just one this morning, which I think is really, really important and hopefully encouraging. And it's this, the resurrection of Jesus means that one 
day, every sad and bad thing will come untrue. You say, is that ripped off from J.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings? Yes. <laughs> Sam Gamgee said it, but I think it's pretty good. The resurrection of Jesus means that one day every sad and bad thing will come untrue. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits. The first fruits. You say, wait a second, it, this is the first fruits. What does that mean? In other words, it's a taste of what to come, it's an appetizer, it is a down payment. The resurrection, because what happens is after resurrection, we still live on a sin cursed earth, right? So I have a, a scripture across from my, my chair of prayer that I look at every day and it says, hope, 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 hope. The resurrection is a down payment for hope. Let's be honest, there's nothing more terrifying and that feels um, more final than death. And I know some of you have dealt with this concept, this reality of death this year. And you're sitting there, and you're broken with sadness over somebody you've lost. Maybe it was, maybe it was expected. Maybe it was a, a mom or a dad or a grandparent, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was sudden and, and tragic. Maybe it was the death of, of a spouse or a brother or a sister or a child or, or a close friend. And, and death feels devastating to us, permanent, like we're losing stuff we'll never get back. Right? We, we even get a taste of this as we age, Right? Things, uh, this is a reality check for me. Things in my body are not improving. Um, I don't get better looking and stronger and healthier every year. Things are, are getting worse, and that's depressing. I wake up sore now from sleeping. <laughs> You're like, well, you, did you hit the gym? Were you raking? No, nothing, nothing. Almost comatose, all day doing nothing. Wake up the next day, I'm like, oh! Literally, Ruth says, she said to me the other day, she said, um, after I woke up, I walked into the bathroom, and she said, are you okay? You don't look right. <laughs> and I said, I'm fine, I was just sleeping. I said, I'm a little sore and wore out, but what do you expect? I said, I am dying in real time. The resurrection shows us that even if we are in Christ, none of that is ultimately true. There is, write this down. I don't have it on the screen. There is, for those who are in Christ, a great reversal ahead. A day is coming when God will remove the curse of death entirely from our lives. Now get this. He will undo every injustice and heal every hurt and on that day, God will wipe away every tear and he'll make all things new. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, every sad and bad thing comes untrue. And here's what's even more amazing. The death and sadness that we went through will become part of the victory, right? Part of the story of our victory so that victory will seem sweeter and richer for having gone through it. Paul says that in the resurrection, death will be swallowed up in victory. When you swallow something, it becomes a part of you, right? You swallow food, and it becomes a part of you. The pain and struggle of life become a part of our victory so that the final product is better for having gone through it. One day we'll see that God used all those things in our lives to make us more like him and to increase our enjoyment of him. Let me, let me share a story with you that I shared two, I couldn't believe it, I had to look it up. Man, time has gone so fast. 
that I shared two years ago in our, our series on heaven, our All Things New series. It's so good, I want to share it with you again. It's a story about the Christian writer, artist, and Bible teacher, Joni Erickson Tata. I highly recommend. There's lots of books out about her. Read her biography. It'll change your life. It'll change your life. Joni was paralyzed as a teenager in a diving accident. She was beautiful, popular, athletic, brilliant. She was an artist. She had it all, but as a teenager, she began to wander far from God. By her own words, she said that God used the accident to bring her back to himself. She has now, now get this, lived as a quadriplegic for more than 50 years. Yet in her biography, she anticipates that moment of seeing Jesus in eternity, and she writes these words. She says, and I quote, when I get to heaven, I'm going to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. Notice, I'll be walking. I'm going to thank him for every character-refining work he did in me and through me because of this wheelchair. And then I'm going to ask Jesus to send this wheelchair straight back to hell. Hallelujah. There's some infirmities. There's some stuff. There's some issues in your life. You're like, Jesus, I can't wait to stand before you in eternity where you make all things new and send those things straight back to hell. I'll make every sad and every bad thing become untrue. Hey, over the past 20 months, many of us have wondered where um, life is all headed. And I, I can tell you, it's headed to the grave. All of it. Mask or no mask. Vaccine or no vaccine. We're going to die eventually. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't make the, the best, wisest decision concerning our health. We should. But regardless, we're all going to die one day. As I like to say and say often, um, the mortality rate is still hovering right around 100%. But our story doesn't have to end there. Because of the empty tomb, our road doesn't end at the grave. If anything, it begins there for those who are in Christ. I want to finish this morning um, with a, another, it's so good, you're going to love it, Bible Project video that summarizes much of what we talked about. Take a look. We've been exploring the theme of the royal priest in the Bible. We started by looking at Adam and Eve, who were called to represent God and rule over creation as his image. Ruling and representing God, this is the ideal role of a royal priest. But tragically, they're deceived by a creature, they abandon their calling, and so humans are exiled from Eden and fill the world with violence. But all is not lost. God promises that one of their descendants will come to intervene on their behalf and restore the blessings of Eden. A new priest to restore the failed priests. He's going to strike that deceiver while being struck by it. He's like a royal priest who becomes a sacrifice. Now through Israel's story, God raises up many people who could have been this royal priest, like Abraham, Moses, and David. And they all fail, but their stories point forward, anticipating the ultimate royal priest. And this brings us to Jesus. Now, in the time of Jesus, the people of Israel were ruled by the Roman Empire, but they were governed by their own priests, including the high priest who worked in the Jerusalem temple. The high priest was the only one who could enter the most holy space, and it was separated by a thick curtain embroidered with images of cherubim. And the high priest at this time was a man named Caiaphas. 
He is the one who currently represents the people before God. But then Jesus came onto the scene. And when we're introduced to Jesus, he's outside of Jerusalem at the Jordan River getting baptized. The skies open up and God says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am very pleased. Now, these words blend together three statements from the Hebrew scriptures that are all about the coming royal priest, who will be the king that God promised to raise up from the line of David, and also the beloved son, like Isaac was to Abraham. And he's the suffering royal servant of Isaiah who dies for the sins of his people. This baptism is like his ordination as a royal priest. Right. And so it's no surprise that afterwards, Jesus starts going around acting like a priest. All right, like forgiving people of their sins or restoring people who were impure so they could enter the temple. These are the things that the priests who work in the Jerusalem temple were supposed to be doing. But Jesus is doing it outside their authority. And so they start to see him as a threat. And so this leads to a story where Jesus goes up with some friends to a high mountain and there he's transformed. He starts shining and all of his clothes become pure white. This is like the vision Moses had of the ideal high priest. Yeah, exactly. Jesus is here being revealed as the ultimate royal priest. And it's here that Jesus decides that he's going to Jerusalem, even though he knows that he'll get killed. And so later, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he challenges the authority of the current priesthood who are running things in the temple. Like when he storms in and disrupts the sale of animal sacrifices. Yeah, this is his way of showing he's the priest in charge. And then later he's asked, who do you think you are? And so Jesus responds by quoting from Psalm 110 in Israel's scriptures. This is the psalm where King David speaks of someone that he calls his Lord, someone greater than him who will rule as a royal priest. Jesus is claiming that he is that priest. This makes the priests in Jerusalem angry. So they have Jesus arrested and they put him on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, who asks Jesus, are you the anointed one? And what he means is, are you the royal priest? Because right now that's my job. And Jesus responds once more by quoting Psalm 110, saying, I am, and you are going to see me ruling at God's right hand. But actually, we're about to see Jesus get killed. How is that ruling as a high priest? Well, remember from Israel's scriptures, the pattern of the royal priest who surrenders himself as a sacrifice. Jesus is saying that offering his life for others is the way that he's going to ascend his royal throne. When Jesus died, the curtain in the temple tore in two. In God's own life presence, the blessings of Eden that were once guarded and separate, now they can flow out of the temple to fill all of creation. And when Jesus comes alive from the dead, he appears to his followers and commissions them to go out to the nations. So that they can share the good news that Jesus is the ruling king and priest who's going to restore the blessings of Eden. This is why the Apostle Paul called Jesus the new Adam. He's inviting us back into Eden to become like him. So that we can take up our lost calling of being God's royal priests. Yes, and that new royal priesthood that's made up of the followers of Jesus, that's what we're going to explore next. Next week, Nathan um, will talk about what it looks like for us to be the royal priests of Jesus, the hands and feet of our Savior, and to live out 
the kingdom of God, continuing establishing the kingdom that Jesus began to establish 2,000 years ago. And Nathan's going to talk about what it looks like, right, after the resurrection to do the things that Jesus has called us to do and to do it by the power of Holy Spirit. If we were to go back just a little bit to the upper room right before Jesus died, he gave some marching orders to his disciples. And in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, there in that upper room, he said, I'm leaving you, right? I'm going to die, but I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit to be with you. And he'll guide you and he'll counsel you and he'll convict you and he'll encourage you. Acts chapter 1, 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, you'll get resurrection power. Jesus has died and resurrected. Now we've got some work to do. Now we've got some work to do. Not for salvation, right? But because we love Jesus. He's called us to do it. If you're on the prayer team, please come up right now. Um, There will be people all over this room who want to pray with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, Lee, um, I want to know what repentance looks like. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus, to turn from me and turn to him? People up here will love to share that with you. I'll be up here somewhere. I'd love to share that with you. You have full access to anyone on staff. I say it often. That same guy who came to my house and sat in my bedroom, I don't know if you'll sit in my bedroom, but you can come to my house. And we'll talk about salvation. We'll talk about anything. Maybe you're here this morning and you see that baptismal and you're like, ah, I love Jesus and he commanded me to get baptized to tell the world that I'm a follower and I haven't done it. You can do it today. We've got towels in the back. Um, You can leave now and come back later. Get baptized. Celebrate what Jesus has done in your life. Celebrate. Maybe you just want to pray with somebody. You're like, I, I'm hurting. Where two or more are gathered, Jesus is in their midst. I need that this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for inviting us into Trinitarian fellowship. Thank you for the cross that gave us access. Thank you for the resurrection verified everything that you said you would do. Because you have risen, one day we will rise, those who know and love and have put our trust in you and you alone. I pray for a great outpouring Holy Spirit of you in this place, in our community, God. The work has just begun. By your strength, by your power, help us to do it. Amen.